Welcome back to Matinees on Main Street. My name is Alan, and this is the podcast about the history of the movies from the beginning. On this episode, we're going to take a look at the hazy roots of the narrative. In other words, how the movie started to become our visual storytellers. Or maybe I should say how the movie started to become the visual storytellers for the movie industry for they're the ones that really wanted to entertain us. The belief that the movies are our cultural storytellers goes way back in the history of the cinema, and it was and is only one of several ways that the moving pictures could be used. Still, this was the line of interest that most inspired the growth of the industry to the exclusion of the other ways that moving pictures could be used. After all, despite other concepts, such as the movies as a way to spread news, or a new experimental art form, or even as a promoter of business concepts, as one European mentioned at the beginning of the 20th century, it was the movie's ability to tell stories that entertained us the most and would make the movie companies wealthy beyond belief. Picking apart where the narrative of cinema came from became a major project for the film historians after World War II, as realizations slowly dawned upon people interested in film history that the cinematic past was quietly disappearing. During World War II, some films, especially those that the public was not that interested in, were being reclaimed for their silver content due to the war efforts. This would involve removing the images by separating the photochemicals from the silver. This continued after the war and would then include the burning of discarded films as a way to make space in corporate film collections and warehouses. No effort seems to have been made to contact people who collected films in order to offer them a chance to buy them. That is, if they were even aware that people were actually collecting old movies at this time. I'm not sure if this destruction directly motivated film scholars, but it sure did parallel their efforts to understand early film history. Before that time, what passed as film history was mostly told in popular books, in particular Terry Ramsey's book A Million and One Nights. Ramsey was a newspaper writer who worked in the film industry and started to research this subject sometime around World War I. By the early 1920s, he was publishing articles about early film history in Photoplay magazine, and these articles eventually were fleshed out and turned into a book by the late 1920s. His research was pretty good, but not great. He's taken hits from later film historians for not using enough documentation to back up some of the statements he published. For instance, it's the memories he used from the many people he interviewed that were questioned. Another is the way Ramsey sometimes sacrificed fact in the name of a good story. 
Outside of Ramsey, the early film histories focused on other rather myopic angles, such as the science of the creation of the movies or the influence of theater. What was not discussed were the more direct subjects, such as the development of the movies as a business or the star system, which was fully developed by the 1920s, but was obvious to many by the mid-1910s. In the 1940s, efforts started to be made to save and collect silent movies. Regardless, some movies were gone by this time. There had also been a few major studio fires, such as the one Fox suffered in New Jersey in 1937. A number of important films from the silent era went up in smoke at that time, including Annette Kellerman's Daughter of the Gods, almost all of Theda Berra's films, including Cleopatra and Salome, and later Fox box office hits, such as Over the Hill to the Poorhouse. On the other hand, Mary Pickford had grown embarrassed by her cinematic output and had repeatedly made statements about burning them, but instead handed them over to the Library of Congress. Thank God. Cecil B. DeMille preserved his films. A major collector had managed to preserve some of the Talmadge sisters' films, along with films by their former brother-in-law, Buster Keaton. Keaton himself had managed to keep some of his films in his garage. Apparently, Clara Bow also kept some of her films and showed them to her neighbors on New Year's Eve. In later years, she invited whomever was interested in her Los Angeles tract home neighborhood to come and see the crazy neighbor performing in old silent films. But not all of these salvation projects were successful. Apparently, actress Colleen Moore had turned hers over to a major art institution, and they allowed some of her films to degrade. Theda Barra's copies were stored in the attic of her lovely Beverly Hills home and turned to dust. To these actors and directors, these films were primarily representations of works they had done in a former life. To them, these movies were not history or works of art. They were simply personal accomplishments. But there was a growing body of fans, scholars, and academics who would argue with that, and it seems to have come into the open in the 1950s with the academic work of the French New Wave. For the first time, these early films were being discussed for their ideas, their craftsmanship, the cinematic innovations involved in them, and the capacity for storytelling. And it's this last innovation I want to look at today. In a way, too much is made out of this idea of storytelling evolving in cinema. That's because a narrative already existed everywhere in the lives of the people around 1900. You could read stories in magazines, newspapers, and the like. Plays used storytelling, as did novels. At the time, stories could be found in works of Victorian art. Children read stories. In fact, the late 19th century is a golden age of children's literature. Comic strips told stories, as did comedians and lecturers in vaudeville. Magic lantern exhibitors told stories. Even your friends at the local store or at the church social told stories of one kind or another. 
the most used book of that time, the Holy Bible, was filled with stories. So the why it started to appear in the movies is kind of obvious. What is more important is how the movies learn to tell a story, and if you couldn't use words, how did you tell a story in the movies? That is probably the most important reason for understanding narrative in film. So, how did the tools that were used to tell visual stories in silent films used? And how did they develop? Or did certain ones work and others disappear over time? When the movies started, they were so short that the film men really didn't have time to tell a story, nor did they have the inclination. All they really wanted was to sell machines, and photographing movement was all they needed to do to prove both the machines and the moving image process worked. But the Lumieres were willing to try one joke on 40 seconds of film. A gardener is watering, a mischievous boy crimps the hose, and as the gardener looks into the nozzle, the young boy releases the crimp and sprays the gardener. The gardener chases him, and in some filmed versions, the boy is spanked. There were endless remakes and variations on this film. Other companies made knockoffs of it and even tried their own variations. Boyish humor seems to have been especially strong at the Edison facility, so there was some experimenting with this story. But even the English film men, such as Robert Paul and Cecil Hepworth, liked the humor and made their versions of the film. The most popular film inspired by the Gardner film may have been the pillow fight films that the Edison Company made. In the first film, the girls get in trouble for letting feathers fly, but it seems the public either didn't appreciate that the young girls got in trouble, or that part of the story was edited out because some versions I've seen only show the pillow fight. To his credit, George Smith did create an extremely clever variation on the pillow fight theme in The Miller and the Chimney Sweep, where two men, a miller white with flour and a chimney sweep black with soot, pound on each other using the residue of their jobs. All of these films have a cause and effect. While this isn't the only way to tell a story, it was the easiest way to tell a visual one in less than a minute. It's no surprise that all of these early comedy films used cause and effect. Cause and effect means that something happened and it caused a response. Cause and effect can also be sentimental or even tragic. But in 1897, cinematic cause and effect had a comic touch. It was used in vaudeville comedy and was easily transplanted to the movies. What's more important about the first steps of narrative at this time is that none of it required what we would consider film editing. These early joke films were filmed in a way that simulated vaudeville stage performances, so no cutting or editing was required. The cameramen weren't even panning the camera yet as none of the cameras have the ability to rotate. What's also strange is that there weren't more of these films, although it's really hard to tell as so many of them are now gone. 
It's this period that really takes a beating when it comes to lost movies. The estimations are that around 95% of the movies that were made before the Nickelodeon era are gone. One more thing that seems strange is that no attempt had been made to use the cause-and-effect concept in a dramatic way in these early films. Again, in all those missing films, you may have some attempts, but it's also possible that these men, all involved in making machines rather than movies, were really not that interested in making a minute-long film that was truly dramatic or honest. But there were exceptions, most notably Georges Méliès. I've talked previously about Méliès. He was a French magician who bought the Robert Houdin Theatre in Paris. Among the tenants of the office spaces above the theatre was Antoine Lumière, father of the Lumière brothers and co-owner of the business his sons ran. Antoine used the space in the building as the Parisian office for the Lumiere's company. He was also a fan of magic and befriended Méliès. Because of this friendship, Méliès was at the first public exhibition of the Lumiere films. It was also because of their friendship that Antoine refused to sell Méliès one of their film cameras. In his eyes, as it was with all other people who invented moving machines at this time, these machines were simply an expensive gimmick that would eventually lead to heartbreak. But Méliès pursued the idea and eventually bought a machine through Robert Paul. From that point on, Méliès attempted to find ways to incorporate his new mechanical toy into his magic show and until the end of his life, he would always see the movie camera and projector as simply another tool in his magic performances. If you've watched any of the recent movies that portrayed magic in the 19th century, say The Illusionist or The Prestige, or even Hugo, you'll see that mechanical toys were a big part of the act at that time. This was a period of time when magicians finally rose out of their centuries-long reputation as shysters, thieves, and con artists. For the first time, the public wanted to be tricked and even paid for the thrill of it. Automatons were big, and most magicians, at least the more successful ones, used them. When Méliès bought the Robert Houdin Theater, he inherited a number of the former magician's automatons, and he used them on stage in between his tricks. Among Méliès' specialties was tying his assistant to a board and suspending her in the air before she disappeared and immediately reappeared in the audience. He also had a number of decapitation tricks. His early film clips fit into the structure of this show. Méliès also used a magic lantern in his show and was always on the lookout for another visual novelty to fill the seats of his theater. He had watched performances of Émile Renault's Theater Optique, and he was also willing to attend the Lumière exhibitions. I'm sure that if the Skladnowski brothers had continued to pursue their moving images idea and had appeared in Paris around this time, that he would have attended one of their shows. Within four months of seeing the Lumiere film projected, 
Melies started to exhibit his films during his show. Obviously, his first films were influenced by the Lumieres. He made films around his home, and they included a card game movie, similar to the Lumieres film that had involved their father and his magician friend, Felicien Trevet. Not only were these films shown during Melies's performances, he also sold copies to local exhibitors in the Paris area. Everyone else who was making films at this time did so in order to fill a supply vacuum in the market. Millier was the one exception. He wanted films as an added novelty in his magic performances, but to do so required that he start experimenting with the physical boundaries of film. How could he use film to enhance his magic shows? How could he duplicate his magic tricks when he filmed them? What inherent abilities lay in the rapid projection of movement from a strip of film containing many sequential images? Could he edit out his breaks? How long could he make his films? He would soon find out. That spring of 1896 saw Melies filming and projecting his magic tricks. He made over 70 films that year, with almost all of them now gone. Of the earlier half, most of these seem to have been either inspired by Lumiere films or simply copycats. At least that's what the titles suggest. They include a few train films and a few actualities among them, as well as a few comedies. One of the earliest films to survive is Une Nuit Terrible, or One Terrible Night. In this film, a man has a terrible fit of sleep as a large beetle wakes him up. It's a simple setup, a bed and a space and a backdrop, and its humor was meant for his magic show audience. Another film from that year is Escamotage d'une dame chez Robert Houdin, or Vanishing Lady, which is simply the recording of one of his better-known magic tricks. But rather than simply recording the trick, Melies seems to have used an assistant to operate and stop the camera, as well as remove objects for him, including his stage assistant, Jahan Dalsi. At this point, these movies offer magic tricks and not much more. From Melies' point of view, that was all they were intended to do. In the movie Hugo, Milliez explains that in a fit of frustration, he destroyed his movie props, contraptions, and sketches, and that may be true. Much of the story that they tell in the film was true. But one thing that they did not mention was that despite his cinematic problems, Milliez didn't think of himself as a groundbreaking cinematic innovator. He saw himself as a magician, a prestidigitator. If he did see himself as a movie maker, it was as a maker of novelties, or more accurately, fairies, or fairy films. Someone who makes fantasy films while the rest of the world turned towards reality. While Melies was making movie fantasies about trips to the moon or rockets into the center of the earth, the rest of the film industry was experimenting with romance, melodrama, westerns, and slapstick. 
Nowhere in the conversations with Méliès did anyone, including Méliès himself, suggest that he may have jump-started the idea of narrative in film. If anyone had mentioned it, it probably would have been a surprise to him. With only five of the 70 films he made in 1896 being available for people to watch, it's really hard to say which films led to which other films. But of those five, the honor for importance probably goes to Le Manoir de Diable, which is known by the names of The Haunted House or The Devil's Castle. Simply put, it's about two men who visit the castle of the devil and the tricks he plays upon them. I count 24 edited cuts in the movie due to the characters or items disappearing or appearing in the film. It also runs about three minutes. Most undoubtedly, this was a special film at the theater, but all these cuts not only take up a lot of movie-making time, the film itself is rather intriguing, with people popping in and out here and there. Thanks to films like this, other filmmakers like Robert Paul, James White, Albert Smith, and George Smith would all do a little stop-motion work. Then there's the issue about the three-minute runtime. As you may remember, the main reason that film time was so short was due to the length of camera film. Most of the movie makers were using regular Kodak camera film in the late 1890s, and the company had not yet developed a movie camera film. So instead, a roll would have to be cut in half and spliced together, providing about one minute of movie time. Due to the experiments with the fight films, it was found that the companies using a higher crank speed could slow it down and still get a respectable image out of their films. And doing that, they had doubled their film time. It's possible that Méliès was doing that, or he may have also been splicing together multiple cut rolls. The importance of this expansion of time using a roll of film was that it gave opportunities to make more complex movies. That is what was happening with Méliès. So when did the first Méliès films appear in the UK? The oldest listing I found was at Ulster Hall in Ireland on April 17, 1897 when a few entertainers from Egyptian Hall in London appeared with a cinematograph and a large collection of films that included Lumiere, Edison, Robert Paul, and Méliès films. These included The Vanishing Lady and The Haunted House. Apparently, Maskeline, the Egyptian Hall's house magician, had recently replaced their flickering movie machine with a cinematograph. The Egyptian Hall hadn't advertised what they were playing in the way of movie shorts for some time, with the exception of movies about the death of Queen Victoria. It could be assumed that The Vanishing Lady and The Haunted House was played in London before it appeared in Ulster. In 1897, Méliès' output falls a bit. As his movies get a little longer and the survival rate of these films are a little better, Sur le Toit, or On the Roofs, sees a few burglars prowling around on apartment roofs looking for places to break in and steal things, as well as a policeman who chases them. 
Much more than the Americans, the French already had a fascination with crime stories, and it's very possible that this film was the inspiration for films such as England's Daring Daylight Robbery with its rooftop fight. A very popular Millier film, Les Dernières Cartouches, or The Last Cartridges, also survives. Based on a painting as well as the collective memory that France has held for the Franco-Prussian War, the movie was copied by other European film companies such as Pathé and Gaumont. Méliès had developed a remarkable talent for designing sets, and it starts to show at this time. The Last Cartridges is one of a number of movie shorts that he made about war, just as America and England became embroiled in their conflicts. Much is made of Millier's science fiction sets, but his staged films about war incidents are among the most convincing war films that come out over the next decade. Still, these films are maybe a minute long and there is only a sense of a scene or a moment as opposed to a sense of a story developing. Between Calais and Dover is a short about a passenger boat sailing the choppy waters between France and England. It's kind of an unintentional sequel to Rough Seas at Dover, made by Bert Akers and Robert Paul. Most remarkable is the sign on the ship that states, Robert Houdin Starline. This is not just a clever name for the boat line. It's the first attempt at limiting movie theft. Apparently, by 1897, Millier's films were already being duped, or as we now think of it, counterfeited. And this is an attempt to put a stop to it. Eventually, every film company would develop a logo that would be placed into their films, such as Pathé's Rooster. At around this time, some of the other filmmakers started to dabble with ideas from literature. These were not stories or even incidents from a novel, but simply a well-known character or well-known scene from a novel. In 1897, Mutoscope made a short called The Death of Nancy Sykes from Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist. How much of this involved Oliver's near escape and how much was simply Fagin's brutal act is not really known. Still, in the following year, Mutoscope made another short about Mr. Bumble, who ran the orphanage at the beginning of Oliver Twist. By 1900, Phytograph, through Edison, was offering a few shorts based on the popular comic strip character Happy Hooligan. So, obviously, in small ways, these filmmakers were starting to delve into character performances of popular figures that could be portrayed in a short period of time. In 1899, Millier made a series of 11 films that highlighted the episodes of the scandal involving Alfred Dreyfus, or as we say in English, Alfred Dreyfus. This was simply a military corruption scandal that attempted to frame a man for another's treason due to the use of false evidence and the military's refusal to admit it was wrong. As this episode played out over the 1890s, it became apparent that many in France would rather be anti-Semitic than admit that their military lied. 
By 1897, Millez made a film based on the incident, and it was confiscated and banned in France. Still, these 11 separate scenes of the affair could easily be assembled into a longer single strip, and it hinted at the ability to tell longer, more complex stories. Later, Millier would deny that that was his intention with this film, and he probably was right. Each segment had its own introductory title, and he said his intent was only to sell them separately, although if someone bought all 11 and showed them as one, they had a right to do so. It was his next movie that really changed his approach. That film was Cendrillon, or as we call her, Cinderella. After a while making the Dreyfus films, Milias decided to make a movie with a longer runtime and a big cast. Obviously, he was making good money to be able to do this, and there must have been a growing interest within the French stage for extras to appear in his films. He filmed during his mornings and early afternoons before everyone, including himself, left to work in the evenings. There are four different scenes in this film, each with its own design set, so the amount of work spent in preparing this film had to have been much greater than simply filming four scenes. Cendrillon, or Cinderella, was played by Mademoiselle Beral, who was a dancer at La Revue de l'Olympia in Paris. Cendrillon was important in a number of ways. Not only does the movie run for six minutes, it's told in four separate sections, each section with its own sets. Also, the cast is big with a lot of beautiful costumes. The sets are beautifully designed and a good amount of the Cinderella story is told, or at least alluded to. According to historian John Fraser, the film was probably inspired by a Christmas season production of Cendrillon by the Troupe Raymond, which performed at Millier's Robert Houdin Theatre. But it was more than that, as Cinderella had become a bit of a fad by the late 1890s. A little more than a year following the local Troupe Raymond production, composer Jules Massenet premiered his opera Cinderellon and a vogue for Cinderella dances swept the Western world. What was a Cinderella dance? Well, it seems to have been a Christmas season dance, where after dinner and dancing, at the stroke of midnight, all of the guests quickly and quietly leave without even saying the goodbyes to the host or hostess. They just scram. Whether these dances had any effect on Millier's thing is not known, but due to the novelty of the fairy tale at the time, Millier's made this film so that it could be shown in his theater by Christmas of 1899. Many of Millier's performers came from the Parisian nightclubs, reviews, vaudeville houses, and theater, and there are a good many women in dancer costumes in his films. While the idea of scantily clad dancers appearing on stage in film now seems a little tasteless, this scene was more a revolt of modernist tastes over Victorian morals than it was anything else. 
Melies's fairy tales can sometimes seem to symbolize this divide in taste between two generations, although they may simply reflect his taste for using chorus girls and dancers in his films. At the end of Cendrillon, Mademoiselle Barral returns in a ballet costume and dances en point. One thing that is for certain is that Cendrillon casts a big shadow over the movies at this point. The idea that movies could be made that last about four or five minutes and uses more than one scene will now stir in the minds of others. The reason for this is not artistic. It had more to do with financial success. While it seemed that Milliez had succeeded with his movie, the pirated versions of the film took away a lot of what he should have earned. Still, in the back of everyone's minds, the movies now had a potential not envisioned previously. The film first appeared in England at the Hippodrome in London, just before New Year's Eve. In a little over five minutes, the movie portrays 24 vignettes in four sets, some of them passing by so fast they barely register in a person's minds, but those glimpses may have made a powerful impact upon the children watching them at that time. Unfortunately, a duped version of the film quickly popped up in America under the Vitagraph name. The company advertised it as a wonderful reproduction of the film. In New York, people became aware of the film very quickly. This really ruined the American market for Melies, at least for now, but it does show how influential his work had already become. Because of the duping, in the short run, the film didn't have that much of an effect in America. No one connected to the American movie industry had the skills or connections to create such a big-budget fairy tale with such a large cast. On the other hand, there were people who might have been interested in making grandiose fairy tales in England. But unfortunately, things were going sour. One film historian suggested that the Boer War was having an effect on English culture and the film industry in particular. The British film companies were rather committed to making films about the war and later, it does look as if the public lost interest in a war that was proving to be harder to win than it should have been. That means the effects of Miliez's influence was primarily felt in Paris. And the person who claims that influence was Alice Guy. Like Miliez, I've talked about Alice before, so I'll just say that she was the secretary to Leon Gaumont, a young man breaking into the French film industry at the end of the 1890s. He had started a photographic supply company, and when the public's interest in moving images started to grow, he added those machines and supplies to his line of products. Once the demand for films appeared, his secretary, Ms. Guy, offered to help make them. He told her that the side job was hers as long as she got her other work done. In a nutshell, Leon Gamont and Alice Guy visited the Lumiere show at the Café Indien in December of 1895, the same show that Georges Maillet attended. After the show, 
Leon Gamal had contracted with George Demigny to develop a moving picture camera for his company, and by that summer, test films were being made. Who made them is not known, but the best idea would be that either Demigny filmed them himself or that he made films but also trained Alice. The next year, Alice was working with Frédéric Delay as he taught her how to use the camera. This ended in May of 1897 when Delay's wife was killed in the Charité Bazaar fire in Paris. It's probably during that summer that Ms. Key started to make movies on her own. By that time, Méliès had been making them for a little over a year. It's hard to follow her chronology of films, as some people believe that she was making films like La Fille a Show, also known as The Cabbage Fairy, at the very start of her career. I tend to doubt that, since almost everyone else was simply copying the others, and the films that they were making were very simple. It would have been those kinds of films that Ms. Guy seemed to have made at that time. Une nuit agitée, which is an agitated night, sounds a lot like Méliès's Une nuit terrible, or One Terrible Night, and Le Pêcheur dans la Sur, which is The Fisherman in the Stream, is just another bad boy movie, although it's nicely arranged and filmed. There is a lot of Lumière and Méliès influence, although the cameraman she worked with definitely taught her how to arrange an image in an intriguing way. That is, she isn't filming her images as if they were stage setups, like everyone else did. What I'm referring to was a look that was a result of very basic camera positioning that made these early films look like they were filmed on a theatrical stage. No point-of-view shots, except the point-of-view of the audience. No close-ups, and no interesting angle shots. One thing that is missing from her catalog of early films is the newsreel. Instead, she is filling her output with comedies and slight dramas. At a time when everyone else was filming politicians, trains, waterfalls, and horse races, this is incredibly noteworthy. Well, she had not yet made La Fia show. In the time she spent making films, she primarily dealt with simple narrative. If Méliès is an innovative fantasist, Alice Guy may have been an early cinematic storyteller. Like Méliès, though, there is hardly a film available to see, so we can really only guess. Almost all of these are probably lost. But unlike Méliès, there isn't even any descriptions of Miss Guy's work. All that exists are titles. Is L'Entrée à Jerusalem an Easter movie, or just a train pulling out of Jerusalem? It's a title that's very similar to a Lumière's film. Is Déménagement à la Cloche de Bois an actuality about a clock, or is there something humorous about it? I really don't know. Is Je vous y prends a knockoff of Robert Paul's Come Along Do? So a good question for the Gamont Company these days is where are all the late 19th century Alice Key films and do you have any descriptions of them?
By 1900, her work is showing a remarkable sense of individuality when compared to the others. Only Méliès stands out beside her. But where do we place La Fille Achot? It definitely shows inspiration from Méliès, and yet it is distinctively different as Miss Guy performs the role of a baby fairy. It's possible that it was made by delay before the disaster of the charity fire, or that Ms. Gee made it herself afterwards. Who knows? It's also possible that La Fille Achot was heavily influenced by the appearance of Cendrillon at the end of 1899. What makes things even more confusing is that a longer film, one that's about four minutes long, also fits that title. While the earlier La Fille Achot is simply about a fairy pulling babies out of a cabbage patch, the second film definitely has a story behind it. Some film researchers believe its real name is Sage Femme de Première Classe, but due to the theme of a baby merchant pulling babies out of a cabbage patch for a young couple, there are those that confuse this four-minute film with the 52nd La Fia Show. The second film is generally considered a 1902 film, but the first film probably dates to around 1899 or 1900. Despite the success of Cendrillon, Méliès continued to make his usual rounds of short films, including fake newsreel footage, magic tricks, and the like. There were very few fairy films in 1900, although it has been suggested that some of Miss Guy's films may have appeared at the 1900 Paris Exposition, and La Fille Show was possibly one of them. Telling stories seems to have been a very occasional thing in 1900, even in 1902. It would have been hard to detect a trend towards storytelling in films. By then, Méliès had made The Astronomer's Dream and A Trip to the Moon, and every other filmmaker considered these films way too expensive to make. Everyone, including Gaumont and Miss Guy, were still making short shorts. At about that time, Alice became interested in dance films, as well as the continued recreation of other people's films, just as everyone else did. But after this promising start, it would be the British who would continue to pursue the narrative at this point. Our next story will be about the traveling exhibitors in America, who were bringing movies to the smaller cities and towns at that time, as they would provide the main cinematic entertainment in the years before the Nickelodeon boom. So thank you for listening, and I hope you stop by and listen again.